Welcome to your weekly update on all things tax. The Tax Factor from Blick Rothenberg. With Heather Self and Sean Randall. I'm Heather Self. Welcome to another edition of The Tax Factor from Blick Rothenberg, the top 20 business and investment podcast that keeps you up to date on all the latest tax news. We're nearly back to normal now after last week's autumn statement. And this week, I'm delighted to be joined by my colleague, Sean Randall. You'll often see him in the press writing about property and stamp duty. Sean's here this week with a large cake festooned with candles as it's the 20th birthday of SDLT. Is it a happy birthday, Sean? I think so. We'll discuss that in a second. Before we get into that, just a few points that I've spotted in the press over the last few days. Coming back to the autumn statement, if you want to know why a tax cut isn't really a tax cut, you can listen to last Saturday's edition of Moneybox, where Nimesh Shah talks about that to Paul Lewis on the BBC. Nimesh has also been busy today. He was appearing in an event on the taxation of non-DOMs with the CIOT and the Institute for Fiscal Studies. That event will be on the IFS website. The other thing I spotted earlier this week was a Supreme Court judgment on a case of Tui Limited and Griffiths. This isn't a tax case. It's about somebody who unfortunately fell ill on a package holiday and has spent about nine years trying to get compensation out of the travel company. He finally won in the Supreme Court. And while there aren't any specific tax issues, what was interesting was a long discussion on the extent to which you can rely on expert evidence, particularly where in this case, the claimant, Mr Griffiths, had an expert saying his illness was on the balance of probabilities caused by the holiday company. And the holiday company didn't challenge it while the expert was actually giving evidence. They didn't cross-examine him, but they then tried to demolish it later. And eventually the Supreme Court said, no, that's not fair. If you want to challenge the evidence, you have to do it at the time. And I think that could be really quite relevant relevant for tax cases where you're going to have HMRC challenging the appellant's evidence. So an interesting one there, well worth a read, particularly for a very obscure reference to an 1820 case about the supposed adultery of Queen Caroline. I'll let you go and read that one for yourself. Turning now to stamp duty land tax. Sean, just give us a a potted history of how the tax has matured over the last 20 years. Thanks, Heather. So it was introduced on the 1st of December 2003, and really was intended to tighten up, avoid which had been occurring under its predecessor stamp duty. The main driver for this was modernisation, simplification, but more importantly, I think, tax avoidance. So the initial stage, the infancy, if you like, of the tax was really to ensure that it worked in the way that it was uh, intended to work. And I think it's relatively fair to say that it didn't initially, mostly because the anti-avoidance measures inside the tax didn't have enough teeth. We still have stamp duty on shares, I think, don't we, but not on any other assets. And stamp duty itself, I think, is one of the oldest taxes in the system. Was it about 1693 it first came in as a tax on documents? It was slightly before my time, Heather. We do have stamp duty on transfers of partnership interests. So it's not just on shares and also it's on certain types of loan capital too. But yeah, effectively, it's on transfers of shares in private companies. We have the the cousin to stamp duty reserve tax on transactions in listed shares. And even those taxes, stamp duty and SDRT, may be be uh, reformed in the near future too into one consolidated tax. But today we're mostly looking at SDLT and it's got a, a close relative in Scotland and Wales, I think, the land and business transaction tax in Scotland. I'm not sure what it is in Welsh. Yeah, it's uh, the land transaction tax. So, I mean, this is a really important point that you can have three different 
tax charges on substantially similar legislation, depending on where the property is located in the UK, whether it's Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland or England. And these other taxes, the devolved taxes, are enforced by or administered by different tax authorities. So it's absolutely possible for the tax authority in Scotland to take a different interpretation of the same legislation as the tax authority in Wales or England. And you mentioned, Sean, that one of the reasons for introducing SDLT was about modernising the system, but particularly protecting against avoidance. What have we seen happening on that over the last few years? I think initially, understandably, almost inevitably, the, the tax had some gaps, some loopholes, and they were exploited in the infancy of the tax. That really stopped in the most part, I think, on December 2006, so three years after the introduction, when a very widely drafted, quite a peculiar anti-avoidance rule was introduced for stamp duty land tax. There is no parallel of this rule in any other tax. Is that the infamous section 75A, Sean? Yeah, it is the infamous 75A. And it's particularly infamous because there is some doubt over its application to arrangements that I think could not be described as tax avoidance arrangements. So there is an argument or a fear that it's actually an anti-tax saving test rather than a tax avoidance test. What are we seeing currently? Is are we seeing lots of very sort of complex issues in SDLT and people making mistakes without it being avoidance? Yeah, there is some doubt over its um, application, Section 75A, to, as I say, benign tax planning or responsible tax planning. I think there's a bit of an impasse and I expect the next stage of SDLT will be some lead case determining the application of that provision to, as I say, responsible tax planning hasn't yet been, if I can put it this way, a proper example of that. We've had a first tier tribunal decision and no disrespect to the the judge who determined that case, but it certainly raises more questions than it answers questions, I think. Interesting. We've seen something similar in direct tax that we had a whole range of avoidance cases where it was very artificial schemes. And then quite recently, we've been discussing on these podcasts a more recent case where the taxpayer won because it was held to be relatively normal tax planning and not avoidance. It sounds if we might be going the same way on SDLT as well. Yeah, I mean, that's the fear. Certainly, my view is that, you know, read purposively, which is an important principle of statutory interpretation, you need to interpret the legislation in accordance with the purpose and then apply that to the facts viewed realistically. But if you read the legislation purposefully, then it really, its application should be to to counter unintended tax holidays, whether that's tax avoidance schemes or tax advantages that weren't contemplated by Parliament. You know, it doesn't matter, really ought to only apply to unintended tax holidays. So what are the key things that people should look out for if they're about to buy a building, either a residential building or a business building? Ah, Well, it's difficult to be exhaustive. Certainly the main issue currently is the classification or the categorization of the building. Although it may not be obvious, in some cases, residential property might be taxed as if it were non-residential property and vice versa. So there are some really difficult questions regarding how many dwellings are purchased, if any, whether a derelict dwelling or dilapidated or fire damaged dwelling perhaps is taxed as if it were a dwelling, whether something that's in the process of being adapted or constructed for use as a dwelling is in fact a dwelling. There's some interesting 
interesting questions. And the reason why that matters is because, A, there are certain reliefs which only apply to residential property transactions, but more importantly, B, the swing in the tax rates between residential property transactions, which can be as much as 17%, and non-residential transactions, which can be an effective flat rate of 5%. That swing is enormous, a 12% swing at the moment. So the categorization of property transactions really matters. So the question of whether something is residential or not, as you say, is really important. And if I remember rightly, stamp duty land tax used to be what was called a slab tax, that once you went over a limit, the whole amount was charged at a higher rate. Now it's more like other taxes where up to a million, it's not too bad. But if it's over a million, the excess is taxed at increasingly high rates now. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's an important point, Heather. It was a slab uh, system for goodness. Um, I think it's 12 years or 13 years of its life. And in 2016 or, or just before, I think it reverted to a, a slice system and that stopped um, the distortion in property transactions where it was impossible to sell a property just over the threshold of a particular slab. It's more progressive now. But nevertheless, there are some obscure and distortive results of the tax to transactions that seemingly might be simple and ordinary. Nothing's ever simple in tax, is it? How much does stamp duty land tax raise in total? Might it ever be abolished? Good question. According to the most recent figures, I think, for the year 22 to 23, it raised 15.4 billion. That, remember, that's stamp duty land tax only, so it doesn't count uh, the devolved taxes. But by any margin, I think almost 15.5 billion is a, a large amount of revenue. Perhaps it's only a fraction of income tax, but nevertheless it's still a relatively large contributor to the exchequer. It's about twice what we get from inheritance tax, which we discussed a couple of weeks ago. So it's, it's a significant chunk of money. And of course, it's also very easy for HMRC to collect because it's just self-reported every time property is sold and you have to register the transfer with the land registry. So it, it's a difficult tax to avoid completely. Yeah, it's administered well. Um, and the, the trigger for paying it is clear in terms of registration of ownership. I think that underlines the fact that it's unlikely ever to be changed or abolished, I should say. To do so, you'd need to find an effective equivalent of 15.5 billion from somewhere. And it's difficult to see where that money would come from, I think. The one change we were expecting a few years ago, which hasn't ever happened yet, as we've said that the rate of stamp duty land tax is quite a bit more than the rate of stamp duty on shares, which is only half a percent. So on the, the corporate advisory side, what I see all the time is businesses owning their property through a company and wanting to sell the shares and pay half a percent rather than sell the factory or whatever and pay five percent. And we thought we might get the equivalent of stamp duty on transfers of shares where it's a property rich company. Any sign of that coming back? Well, it's been mooted a couple of times before over the life of SDLT. And there is in the in the statute book for Scotland, a land rich charge, an indirect charge to land and buildings transaction tax for sales of residential property rich companies. It hasn't been switched on, by the way, but it's it's on the statute book. But there hasn't yet, I think, been a significant uh, push for an indirect charge to stamp duty land tax on sales of land rich companies. I think it's going to be difficult to distinguish those companies which legitimately hold property and those which don't. Yeah, interesting, because of course, we do have that sort of thing for 
property held indirectly by individuals for capital gains purposes. So the mechanics are there if they wanted to do it. Yeah. Anything else you think that our, our listeners need to be aware of in the near future on SDLT? I don't think so. I mean, one point that I really wanted to underline was the extent to which residential property transactions is affected by stamp duty land tax and how complicated certain residential transactions can be so far as SDLT is concerned. I'm enormously sympathetic to conveyances. This is a challenge for me sometimes, and this is all I do. So how conveyances are expected to administer and advise on stamp duty land tax on some complicated SDLT transactions is beyond me. So there there is a significant gap there, which hasn't really been addressed, I think, effectively by webinars and guidance and so on. Thanks very much, Sean. We always like to finish with a a mildly amusing point. So I thought I would just mention a VAT point, not chocolate biscuits this time, but fur coats made out of goat fur. If you want to buy a loved one a fur coat for Christmas, I suppose some people do, then check where the goat comes from. If it's from Tibet, Mongolia or Yemen, then the coat will be standard rated. If it's anywhere else, it'll be zero rated. Useful to know. Thanks, Heather. I thought you'd like that one. Thanks very much for joining me this week, Sean. You can find more insights and commentary on tax and a whole range of subjects on our website, blickrothenberg.com. We've got an autumn statement hub, which is really worth visiting, and that includes a fantastic tax calculator so you can see if you are better or worse off. There's also the updated version of our 2024-25 tax facts booklet. Is there a topic you'd like us to cover on future episodes? You can visit the Tax Factor page on our website where you'll find a form to contact us. We record the podcast on a Wednesday so you can message us right Right up to the time we record. I'm sorry, but we can't give individual advice or responses to messages. My thanks again to Sean for joining us this week. We're off now to cut our SDLT birthday cake. Next week, Nimesh Scharf, Blick Rothenberg CEO, is back in the host chair and he's joined by private client partner Roger Holman. Until next time, from Sean and me, Heather Self, it's goodbye. That's all for this episode of The Tax Factor. Find all our previous episodes wherever you get your podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not try Brave Business, our podcast series for entrepreneurs. Find it wherever you get The Tax Factor or on the Blick Rothenberg website. The Tax Factor.